For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship and praise your glorious and majestic name. And now as we consider the truth from Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23, we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. Uh, Well, sometimes my wife will uh, come home from any store uh, with great excitement, and she'll come in the door with bags in her hands, and she'll say, I have to show you this. And so I'll stop what I'm doing, or I'll get up from my chair, and um, you know, stop watching TV for a moment, and she starts pulling out from the bags. Maybe it's clothes for our kids. We have two kids, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, maybe it's something that she got a great deal on, something she got on sale. Uh, could be a new ingredient that she bought from Wegmans about something she wants to bake. Regardless of what it is, she pulls things out of the bags. Um, I have to feign uh, excitement. I have to pretend to be very interested and uh, be very attentive as she's showing me all these things and explaining the journey, the odyssey really, that it was to buy those items and all the options she had and all of that. Now, I I learned to do this uh, really early on in our marriage at the young age of 23. Um, One day before we had kids, she comes home with shopping bags in hand, and she says, I got to show you this. So she starts uh, pulling out some shirts that she bought, and you know, she's holding the hanger there, and she's asking me what I think of them and all of that. And, and I say something to the effect of, like, they're nice, they're good, they're fine, you know, great, good job. That type of thing, you know, I was kind of distracted, wasn't paying attention that much. And then all of a sudden, you know, she starts to ask why I don't like them, to which I say, I, I like them, they're fine, they're good, they're nice, they're wonderful, whatever, and try to get back to whatever I'm doing. Um, but I, I didn't apparently show enough interest, so she kept pressing the issue. Um, and she tells me how she got them on sale, how she got a wonderful deal, to which I responded to something of the fact, well, if you didn't get them on sale and didn't get that wonderful deal, then these things wouldn't fit in our budget. And if they didn't fit in our budget, then you would be foolish to buy them. Again, you know, especially if you're married, that doesn't go over very well. And so um, I've now learned 10 years in to um, be surprised, be attentive, Be interested, whether it's stuff from a shopping bag or a haircut, whatever it is, it's the most wonderful thing I've heard that day. Now, we can fall into a similar temptation with this passage this morning. Um, We can try to, you know, gear ourselves up, hype ourselves up, act interested, act attentive, um, look at this passage and think, yeah, that's good, that's fine, that's nice, but we got to, you know, because it's God's Word and we're in the book of Romans and Paul argues this point pretty well, so we need to act like this is wonderful good news. This news that, Paul says, we are slaves of God. But in our heads, we can be thinking, well, I don't, I don't really want to be uh, a slave. I'm not that interested in that. I don't see the major ramifications of this. And so Paul is going to outline uh, very well, as you've seen throughout the book of Romans, um, rationally, logically, systematically, why us as Christ followers, those of us who have new birth in Christ, the fact that we are slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, slaves of 
Obedience is actually good news. And I pray that as we consider the glorious benefits of that slavery, that we wouldn't have to pretend to be interested or to feign excitement or to feign attentiveness, but rather that we would be compelled with new affections to see uh, the beauty of what Paul is really talking about in this passage. And uh, the main idea, the main point is really this, that as God's people, as Christ's followers, um, who have been set free from sin, we are called to present ourselves as slaves to God. Now, uh, Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 5, um, made this statement. He said, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And as he's saying that, he has this concern that that statement, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, could be misunderstood as promoting sin. Because you think, all right, well, the more sin, the more grace. So so he's anticipating this argument that says, well, shouldn't I sin more? Because then we'll get more of God's grace, and then ultimately God would be more glorified. The more sin, the more grace, the more glory. So Paul, in this diatribe, this you know, poses a question, then answers it. In Romans chapter 6, he, he responds. So he says in Romans 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to... Continue in sin that grace may abound. And this was taught on, I believe, last week, right, Mike? And, and then he says in verse 2, By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And he goes on to explain, like he says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his Death and, and he makes this argument how because of that, because we've been united with Christ and his people uh, through the act of baptism, and that we're no longer to continue in sin, we're no longer to present ourselves as instruments for unrighteousness, but rather we are to present ourselves as instruments to righteousness, for we have died to sin. And then he kind of wraps up that argument with the summary statement. In verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. It will not lord over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Excellent closing statement. Paul's point is is that Israel did not keep the law as long as they were under the law, that Mosaic covenant. But now that believers are under the power of grace, they are enabled by the Holy Spirit, to keep the moral uh, terms of the law, that we're enabled, we can actually obey and follow the commands of Christ. Now, we're not under law, we're under grace. But once again, Paul, um, as he's arguing this case, he's anticipating an objection. He's anticipating a question or a thought. And someone out there, he thinks, might pervert the statement for sin will have no dominion over you since we are not under law and under grace. Someone may reason, well, if I'm not under law but under grace, then I can go out and do whatever I want. 
as grace abounds, if I'm really under grace, I'm a child of God. I know God doesn't like sin, but his grace will always be there. He'll always forgive me so I can go out and do whatever I want because I'm not under the penalty of the law. Now I'm under grace. And Paul's going to argue in our passage, I just wanted to connect the flow of thought there, that that type of reasoning, I can go out and sin and do whatever I want because I'm under grace, that type of thinking is deadly. And so this is what he says. This is verse 15 of our passage now. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's his summary. That's his anticipation of the argument. And then he says in verse 15, like he said in verse 2, these three words with an exclamation point. By, no, means, it's emphatic, absolutely not. Drive it out of your minds. Drive it out of your hearts. Grace does not sanction or encourage sin. In fact, if you think that grace sanctions and encourages habitual, unrepentant, unconfessed sin, you miss it. And then this is how Paul is going to reason and argue and present the case. First of all, he says, we are either slaves of sin or slaves of obedience. Slaves of death or slaves of righteousness. Slaves of the enemy or slaves of God. That's the comparison, and those are the things that he's going to compare and Contrast. Look at verse 16. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The, the, the point of that verse, the, the logic behind it, he says, if you give yourself over to anyone or anything, if you serve anyone or anything, if you, and that, that serving, you're essentially presenting yourself as a servant or a slave, that anyone that you or anything that you present yourself to, you are slaves. You're enslaved to that thing or that person. You're enslaved to whomever or whatever you obey. And then he presents the two options, either of sin, with the outcome, leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, I think it's helpful just to understand, because you hear the term slavery, and rightly so, a ton of negative um, associations start forming in our mind. But I think it is helpful to understand Roman slavery at this time, because when we hear slavery, we immediately think of American history and the atrocities of slavery from the 17th through 19th century. And while Roman slavery was still wrong and abhorrent, it wasn't the same thing as um, American history slavery that we usually think when we hear the term. Now, it's estimated that the population of Rome in the first century, the time of this writing, uh, was about one-third slaves. So vast was the slave population at that time, that there was a suggestion that every slave should be forced to wear some distinctive articles of clothing. But that idea was immediately abandoned because they were afraid that everyone would see the slave's numerical strength in the city of Rome. 
Slaves generally were permitted to work for pay. That's one difference. And to save enough money to have the opportunity to buy their freedom. And what was often the case in Roman slavery at this time was something known as voluntary slavery. Uh, People found themselves in dire poverty, and so they could offer themselves as slaves in order to be fed and housed. So Paul's point in that context is that uh, anyone who offers themselves up as slaves, if you give yourself over to that, invariably you would have your offer accepted. And he's pointing out that that one cannot simultaneously retain their freedom and give oneself over to slavery. Particularly in this context, like voluntary slavery to present yourselves, especially as those in Christ who have been set free. Self-surrender inevitably leads to slavery. And so spiritually speaking, Paul's saying we have two options. Slave of sin, slave of death, or slave of God, slave of righteousness, slave of sanctification, slave of obedience. Jesus would say that you cannot serve two masters. In John chapter 8, when he's having a a conversation with the Pharisees and the religious leaders, um, they answered him in John 8, 33. You'll see this there. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. If you sin, if I have sinned, Jesus says, if you practice that sin, you're enslaved to sin. And those who are enslaved to sin will claim that they are free, just following my heart, following what I want, being true to myself. And what will often happen to those who are enslaved to sin is they will um, exert, they will declare their freedom. And John Calvin, about 400 years ago, wrote this. He said, the greater mass of vices anyone is buried under the more fiercely and and more bombastically does he extol his freedom. Basically saying the more vices you're um, buried under, the more vigorous you will be in proclaiming and declaring your freedom. Now, the end of slavery, according to our text, is death. And the end of Uh, obedience, it's going to say, is eternal life or righteousness. And and right here, Paul has in mind our conversion. When we um, gave ourselves over to Christ. Now certainly we know that it was an act of God, but conversion is an act of self-surrender. And self-surrender, remember the Roman context, inevitably leads to slavery. And slavery demands total, radical, and exclusive obedience. You can't serve to masters. So when we presented ourselves to our Lord, we were permanently and unconditionally at His disposal. And having chosen our master, God, then we have no further choice but to 
obey Him, and that obedience leads to life. Now Paul's going to continue in verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, this is verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. His flow of thought here is essentially saying our conversion is really an exchange of of masters. It's an exchange of slaveries. And he views the new master, God, in a very positive context. And he starts verse 17 as saying, thanks be to God. God is the one who rescued us from our former master, i.e. sin, death, hell, and the grave. It's like what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul says we were once slaves of sin. That was our master. We owed it total, radical, and undivided obedience. But no longer what happened. He says in verse 17, You who have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That is an odd phrasing to talk about the exchange of slaveries. That is an odd phrasing to talk about new life and regeneration. And yet, when he says that we have now become obedient from the heart, it is precisely talking about our new life. It is precisely talking about our regeneration, the new heart he's given us. It reminds me of what Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, um, I have just inundated myself in the book of Jeremiah for the last year as we at Missio are going uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter through uh, the book of Jeremiah. It's been a um, very interesting series to uh, spend about a year with the weeping prophet. And nonetheless, um, as we know, as we study God's word, read God's word, hear God's word, meditate on God's word, and engage God's word that It continues to produce life, and it transforms us. It renews our minds and our hearts. And so we've been, um, though our theology would tell us this, experientially we've been pleasantly surprised as we've gone through um, the weeping prophet's writings. And um, we're about to enter now, though. Jordan's today. uh, Jordan Cinziano is teaching on Jeremiah 29. And next week, I get to teach the first chapter, Jeremiah 30, from the Book of Consolation, the Book of Hope. Jeremiah, for uh, 29 chapters, has been railing against the um, Israelites, the people that were in Jerusalem and Judah, um, railing against them for their uh, idolatry, railing against them for what he compared to spiritual adultery, railing against them for their generational covenant unfaithfulness and their complete disregard for God and the things of God. 
So much so, that actually in Jeremiah 27 and 28, Jeremiah is commanded by God to put on this yoke, you know, something that two ox, oxen would wear and it would like pull a plow. So he puts his head in one and he's carrying around the other side. And he's going around Jerusalem uh, to the leaders and to King Zedekiah and to all the people and the prophets basically saying, submit to the yoke of Babylon. Submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is going to be an instrument of God to um, basically bring about uh, repentance, that he's their judgment, and God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar for that. So if you submit yourself to Nebuchadnezzar, you'll have life, and if you don't, you'll just bring upon yourselves further judgment. But then you get into the book of Consolation, and there is one of the most well-known verses in the book of Hope, in Jeremiah chapter 31. In fact, um, when you went through the book of Hebrews, you probably looked at this as well. Is this the longest Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament? And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, um, you see this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. Notice the connection to Romans 6. Became obedient from the heart. Down in Jeremiah 31, he says, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The problem with one of the challenges with the old covenant was that it was external. But God promises in Jeremiah 31 to make it internal, to do a you would call a, a spiritual heart operation to give us renewed hearts and renewed minds. I, I came across uh, this story about the first ever heart transplant performed by Dr. Christian Barnard in December, all the way back in 1967 in Cape Town, South Africa. And I couldn't tell if the story was uh, folklore or legend or fact, but this is how the story goes, that Dr. Barnard uh, goes to his patient after the successful heart transplant, and um, after he's recovered, he comes back to the doctor, and, and he asks the patient if he would like to see his old heart. And so Dr. Barnard takes a glass container with the patient's old heart and hands the container to the patient. And uh, for a moment, the patient just stood there in stunned silence. Uh, the first man ever in history to hold his own heart in his hands. And after a while, the patient finally said, so this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back to the doctor, turned away, and left forever. This is, in essence, what Christ does uh, we still have the same heart, but it's radically new. For those who have trusted in Christ and have become partakers of the divine nature, um, that's 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we have a new heart. It's like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And then that last verse in Jeremiah 31, this is verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is exactly what the Old Covenant could not do. This is what the author of Hebrews argues in Hebrews chapter 8. Under the Old Covenant, sins were never completely forgiven because they were never truly forgotten. They were covered in the Old Covenant, awaiting and pointing to the true forgiveness through Christ's death. But... God cannot forget unless he wills to, and he never forgets anything. And so sin, therefore, needed to be punished because God was holy. And so God punished those sins in the person and work of Christ, and therefore he's forgotten them because he's actually fully and completely dealt with them. What wonderful news, the forgiveness is complete. That's why Jeremiah can say, uh, or God can say through Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more because he dealt with those sins through the person and work of Christ. Now, back to Romans 6. If this is our reality, then we are no longer slaves to sin. We have become obedient from the heart. We become partakers of the new covenant to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. Now we're actually enabled to obey the commands of God. Now we're actually enabled through the empowering and sealing of the Holy Spirit because of the personal work of Christ, instrumented and integrated, initiated by God the Father to actually live out the moral commands of the law. And we're under grace. So sin is no longer our master. We're no longer under its lordship and dominion. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, and having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. God in his grace broke through the shackles of sin so that, and hear this, glad-hearted obedience could become a reality for you and for I as followers of Christ. That's what Paul's presenting here. How can we who've died to sin, how could we continue in sin if we have been set free from its tyranny and its bondage and now have a new, glorious, wonderful slave master in God? Now Paul's going to concede something in verse 19. He's going to call us to obedient uh, slavery, but he's going to concede something in verse 19. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Paul acknowledges that the metaphor of slavery, uh, it might not be the best. It might not be the most appropriate or accurate metaphor to describe our new life in Christ. Uh, human beings are um, we're finite. We need illustrations that are uh, partial and imperfect, uh, since our minds cannot grasp truth 
without them. And so uh, this, sla- this image, imagery, this metaphor of slavery, it's not totally adequate uh, because um, we don't experience all the negative aspects of slavery, what often comes to mind when we hear that term. But we shouldn't conclude that this metaphor of slavery is a bad metaphor. Um, the image rightly portrays God as our master, and it rightly portrays our response to our master as one we owe total commitment and allegiance to. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. It sounds like a dig. It sounds like an insult, honestly. And there's some debate in commentaries whether it really is an insult or not. I don't don't really think in that first part of verse 19, Paul's going British on us. And what I mean by that is the the British are just famous. They're well-known for um, politely insulting you. It's so polite, if you're not inundated in that culture and a part of it, you don't even know that you're being insulted. They'll call you clever when they really mean you're pretty dumb and dense. Um, They'll tell you not to worry about something when in reality they're thinking you should be stressed out of your mind. Uh, They'll say something is interesting. They'll repeat it often. Interesting, interesting. What they really mean is boring, boring, boring. They're very polite about it. I don't think this is Paul saying, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. He's not like getting a dig in there uh, without them really realizing it. Um, He's just saying that due to their fallen state, due to our fallen state, and either mind and character, we're vulnerable to the temptation, and we need to be reminded of the obedience that we committed ourselves to when we trusted in Christ. And then he continues in verse 19. He says this, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Then consider your old way of life. Remember how you presented yourselves as slaves? Now, he's not going to say sin anymore. He's going to replace that term with impurity and lawlessness. And remember where that led? To more lawlessness. He says, so now present yourselves as slaves. He's going to replace the word obedience with righteousness. And where does righteousness lead? to sanctification. It leads to our holiness. It leads to our maturation. It leads to us maturing and conforming to the image of Christ. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary on this, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he explains the presentation of ourselves to slavery this way. He, he, he says that this passage presents um, all who are enslaved to sin as totally subservient to sin. It it presents sin as exhorting authority over lives of those who don't know Christ, but it's not a picture of unbelievers sinning against our will. It's not like um, unbelievers and those who are apart from Christ are off the hook. Uh, This isn't coercion. This isn't sin um, dragging us, kicking and screaming. Uh, Rather, uh, those apart from Christ freely and spontaneously choose to sin. In other words, unbelievers are slaves to sin in that uh, they always desire to carry out the dictates of their master. 
Now, that doesn't mean that those who are in addictions, whether it's pornography or alcohol or gambling or drug abuse, etc., never wish to be free. But it does mean that um, the desire for those things is ultimately, at the end of the day, it's ultimately greater than the desire to be freed from them. Sinning is what they want to do. And sin will not be satisfied until it achieves total and complete domination. I think of John 10.10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Sin seizes the mind to think sinful thoughts. It grabs the body to perform wicked deeds. It poisons the imagination to crave and desire unholy fantasies. It bends the will to its own design, and in the end, it steals the heart so that the sinner loves what is evil and hates what is good. And so this passage teaches us that only God, therefore, can release us from such subjection, for new desires are necessary from escaping that bondage to sin. And so Paul here, you know, there's an urge and he's, he, to, to obey our new master, to give ourselves over to righteousness in the same way that we used to give ourselves over to sin. And there's an incompatibility in his mind that if we say we're followers of Christ, why would we willingly hand ourselves over to our former master? Why would we willingly um, and sh- shackle ourselves once again to that tyrannical rule. It makes me think of what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says in the book, The Cost of Discipleship. Very early on, I think it's in the preface or the intro, he has this well-known saying where he compares cheap grace to costly grace. And he compares cheap grace to those who uh, say they are followers of Christ but then give themselves over to sin. You'll see the quote on the screen. He says, cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And then he's going to throw out this term, costly grace. That's true, true Christian disciples here. He says that kind of grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. May we be men and women who give ourselves over as slaves of righteousness that we may have life and life to the full. And then Paul, in presenting all this to his audience, saying, if you're not yet convinced, simply consider the glorious benefits of being slaves to God. That's the last point. Consider the glorious benefits of being slaves to God. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
The comparison between the two slaveries continues. Um, But this time he points out that each kind of slavery um, also um, has a kind of freedom associated with it. Um, When my kids don't want to brush their teeth, and that's basically every night, um, I try to communicate to them, like, if you can be free from brushing your teeth, sure, but then you're enslaved to cavities. Or you can be free from cavities and you can be enslaved um, to brushing your teeth. And at the moment, the six-year-old and the four-year-old always cry, we want cavities because they don't really understand it. But, but one type of freedom brings another type of slavery and vice versa. That's what he's saying there. When you are slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. You couldn't do it. You didn't have to worry about it. You didn't think about it. He continues in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things, the ultimate outcome of those things is death. Eternal separation from God in hell. But there is an alternative, verse 22. But now... This is our current reality for those who have trusted in Christ. But now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. There is a slavery which spells death, and there is a slavery which spells life. And then he gets into this well-known verse, the last verse of our passage. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here is the triumphant summary. The old slave master, sin, pays wages, death. Death works now in the lives of those who are under his pay. And one day he will make the final payment. But the new slave master does not pay wages. What he gives cannot be earned. All of it, all of it is grace upon grace upon grace. And so um, you see these two lives portrayed and Paul articulating, saying, no, if you're under grace, you wouldn't give yourself over to your old slave master for when you were converted, when you were given new life, you proclaimed, you inherited, you confessed a obedience to a new slave master. Jesus presents in another way where He says that there's a broad road which leads to destruction and the narrow road which leads to life. Paul, in our passage, calls them two slaveries. And we must consider their outcomes. Now, um, we know, uh, living in a uh, pluralistic, call it hedonistic culture, a culture that's going to say, follow your heart, do what you want to do, be true to yourself, What you want trumps everything else. As long as you don't impose that on other people, but follow your heart, follow your dreams, um, regardless of what God or His Word says. So they're going to, the world is going to herald security and peace and 
freedom, while our passage says those things are not secure, they're not peaceful, and it's certainly not freedom. May we be reminded of what our Savior and Lord said in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, about his own yoke, his own rule. He is there with open arms and he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We see the easy and light burden of our new slave master. And then we compare that to the yoke of iron that leads to destruction of our old slave master. And just like Paul does in Romans chapter 6, where in verse 3 and in verse 16, he starts these arguments by saying, do you not know? In verse 3 he says, do you not know that if you were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death? And then in verse 16 it says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But in both of those verses, part of his argument, he says, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And I think of that, and, and we, as Christ's followers, as God's people, we need to remind ourselves in a similar way. We need to say to ourselves regularly, do you not know who you are? I need to say to myself, do you not know that you're a child of God? Do you not know the meaning of your conversion? Do you not know the meaning of your baptism? Do you not know the meaning of your adoption? Do you not know that you are enslaved to God and have committed yourself to obedience to Him? Do you not know who you are? And then we respond, hopefully, we respond with an emphatic, yes, I am a child of God. Yes, I am a new creation. And yes, by God's grace, I will live and walk accordingly. Um, I, I mentioned the British earlier, and um, I'm a big fan. Uh, I'm interested in British history. Uh, I read those Churchill biographies. Um, I've watched Downton Abbey. My wife and I watch The Crown, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, one of the most controversial figures, uh, particularly in the 20th century in um, the United Kingdom, was uh, King Edward and um, also known as Edward. He reigned for one year, January of 1936 to December of 1936. And those were tumultuous times, particularly in Europe, as um, the Nazis were gaining some momentum in Germany. And the King Edward, he abdicated his throne um, because he wanted to marry a divorced American. And at that time... Um, that was frowned upon as the king or queen was the head of the church in England. And so that was just a big no-no. So he was willing to give up his throne as a statement and out of a profession of love so that he could marry uh, Ms. Wallace Simpson. 
And so a lot of biographies have been made about Edward, and one of the most well-known stories that, that he's been known to tell um, was when he talked about his father, King George V, and he used to call him a harsh disciplinarian. And what's interesting is that he, um, he just gives this one example often of, uh, or he just gave this one example often about the harsh disciplinarian that King George was. And, and oftentimes when Edward would misbehave or he would get out of line, his father would admonish him by saying this, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. Our identity our remembering who we are shapes our actions, shapes our behaviors, and shapes our lives. May we always remember who we are. If we're in Christ, that is our identity. If we are really slaves of God, then we will act accordingly, giving ourselves over, presenting ourselves use the language of Romans 6, to faithful obedience to our Father, our Master, and our King. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you haven't turned to Christ, whose yoke is easy and burden is light, then I pray that you would turn to Him and trust in Him for the forgiveness of sin. And for those of us that have, then may we act and live accordingly. You pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the reminder that this passage is. May we remind ourselves, do you not know those who were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Father, we thank you for the free gift of eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we walk, may we live as those who have been redeemed. May we become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching we are committed to and have heard today. We ask that by your grace you would continue to enable us to do so, that you would continue to provide us faithful brothers and sisters who will encourage us and exhort us to walk in this. And may we be reminded of what 1 John says, you're not looking for sinless perfection, but, but that when we sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you for the call that is on our lives and that we can be called children of God. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.